and grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 1, reading, so, sorry, we'll be reading, uh, but we'll be reading a couple different portions out of John chapter 1, first verses 6 through 8, and then verses 9 to 28. This is the reason we're skipping a little section there is because these are the verses in John's gospel that focus in particular on the witness of John, uh, not John the evangelist, the gospel writer, but the other John. So John chapter 1, we'll hear verses 6 through 8 and then 19 through 28. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then moving to verse 19. And this is a testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let us pray. Our Lord, now we ask that you would, by your Spirit, speak to us through your word, that we might better know who you are who you came, or rather what you came to do, and how it is that we are called to bear witness to you. Amen. In Christian circles and evangelical circles, the word witnessing uh, is often used as a synonym for evangelizing. Uh, And I guess that's fair enough, Um, but I want to think a little bit more about what the word actually means. Witnessing, giving witness, bearing witness, is not a religious term. It's a word that has uh, the that's used particularly in legal and court matters. Uh, you're called to be a witness in court, civil and criminal court. Uh, you're called into the police station to give a witness statement. Maybe not you, but you know you've seen the programs uh, where that occurs. Is that you're called in to give a witness statement? And so giving giving a witness is simply talking about what you know, what you know. And so a Christian witness then is talking about, is explaining, is giving a testimony, a testimony of what you know about Christ, what Christ is to you. And it's a subtle difference from evangelizing, but but it's one, I think, that is important to focus on because that witness then has that very intimate focus, or the very narrow focus, rather, on myself and how I understand and how Christ has affected me, my relationship to Christ. That 
idea of witnessing is central to our text this morning. And what we'll see is that the witness of John the Baptist teaches us how it is that you are to bear witness to Christ today. So we look at our text, we'll see in the first place, verses 6 through 8, that John was a witness. Verses 6 through 8, John was a witness. Notice how John the evangelist begins, and I'm just, just as a, just a, a little piece of business here. The problem that we're going to have with this text is that it's about a guy named John, but it was written by another guy named John. Uh, and I'm going to have to talk about the guy who wrote it, and I'm going to have to talk about the guy about whom it is. And so just to try and make things simple, which, which is not going to work, but, but to try to make things simple, we're going to talk about John the Evangelist and then John, John and then the other John. Uh, John the Evangelist because he wrote a gospel, and this is the older term that we use for the gospel writers, the evangelist. So Luke the Evangelist, Matthew, Mark, Evangelist, and then John the Evangelist. So John the Evangelist writes about John, tells us about John, and he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He doesn't give us his background. He doesn't give us any details details of his job description, anything else. He just says a man from John. And there's sort of an assumption then that he seems to have that you've heard of John. You know who this John guy is. And with that, he's, John the evangelist is cluing us in to his assumption that you're familiar with the basic gospel account already. Uh, maybe back when John first wrote this, maybe wasn't entirely sure that you had read a copy of the Gospels, but certainly that you had heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that you knew the basic facts of his life, and that now certainly that you have read one or two or three other Gospel accounts, and so that you know who the players are. This goes throughout John's Gospel, John the Evangelist's Gospel, is this just sort of assumption that you know the background story, and he's not so interested in giving you all the details as he is his focus focusing in on certain things. And that's important too, I think, not giving John the title, which we are so often used to associating with him, John the Baptist. He doesn't give him that. It was interesting, when I was in seminary, I took my New Testament course on the Gospels, and our professor, when we got to John, when he was talking about John the Baptist, said, well, he's actually, should be called John the Presbyterian. Because, of course, his ecclesiology was correct, uh, and he wouldn't be a Baptist, he'd have been a Presbyterian, which really captivated me. I really, I really dug that. That was really good. And then I went and I looked at uh, the gospel accounts, and it turns out he's named John the Baptist. Uh, so, so we couldn't really pull that one off. But what's interesting is that, that clued me in, though, to a phenomenon which is pretty typical amongst Bible commentators, theologians, they're reluctant to call John John the Baptist, which is odd because that's his, that's his Bible name. And I think, but the reason is, there's a reason for that. And that's because when we say, when we say John the Baptist, there's a temptation to think, okay, that's his job. It's like Joe the plumber, uh, Phil the electrician, that's what they do. And so he's, you know, Joe's a plumber, Phil's an electrician, maybe they have hobbies, but we don't care about that. It's just their job description. So we think of John as just being a Baptist. And if you think of John as just being a Baptist, just somebody goes around baptizing, you miss the point. 
There's a whole lot more going on with his ministry that is easily overlooked. And it may be that John the Evangelist, by not giving us the title, not giving John any kind of title here, is opening you up, is opening us up to ask or to think about other ways of understanding John's ministry, and in particular to focus in on an aspect of his ministry which may be present in the other gospel accounts, but which John the Evangelist wants to bring to the forefront. It's namely that John came to bear witness. Uh, Really from our account this morning, if you want to give John a title, you say his name is John the Witness. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. The light that John the Evangelist is talking about here is the main subject of the prologue to this gospel, uh, verses 1 through 18, the prologue, the introduction to this gospel. It's a focus on the light and the work of the light. And that just, no, and I didn't read verses 1 through 18 because that would then bring us into other things, and that's the whole issue with John's gospel, really, is that all the parts are so closely interrelated. To understand any one part, you have to read all the parts. And I'm actually have a 38-minute uh, time timeline or, or time frame this morning because I looked at the I looked at the program at the the thing that Chad put up on planning centers. Like, okay, well now I know what 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 my guidelines are. Then I have to just blow through that one. Um, See how that works. Uh, but but so, so I'm not going to do that because of these really tight time restrictions uh, that, that have been placed on me. But, uh, but the point is, point is, the light is the focus. The light is coming into the world. John was supposed to give witness about that. And, and not only is he supposed to explain about the light, but also that all might believe through him. Not believe in John. The him there is John. They want, he wants people to believe in the light, and through John's witness, people are going to believe in him. And already then, the evangelist is telling us something about the role of the light, that whether or not you believe in the light is the central question of John's gospel. That's the most important thing. It is believing in the light. And it is a yes or no proposition. If you can be t- called to believe in it, then of course there's an option of not believing. So there's a choice. There is a choice which is going to be central, central in John's gospel, but also central in the ministry of this John, of John who is the witness. Now, he was not the light. That's an important thing to understand if we try to understand who he is. He's not the light. He's not the one that John the evangelist has been talking about, the light who comes into the world. But his role is to bear witness about the light, to call people's attention to the light. And so when we say John was a witness, we have to understand that John was a witness to the light. And therefore, moving on to verse 19, therefore John bore witness to the light of the Lord. As he does so, John then explains that he was not the light. John was not the light. Uh, People come to him, uh, priests and Levites, to ask him, who are you? You may wonder, well, why are these people coming to him? Again, John the Evangelist has told us really nothing nothing in particular about what John has been doing or why somebody might show up and ask him questions. Right? He hasn't told us, is he preaching? Is he prophesying? Is he even baptizing? That's not even here yet. So we got to take a second and look at the people who have come to ask him questions. It's priests and Levites. Now, the priests and the Levites at this time in the history of Israel were people who had a very clear job description. 
The priests and the Levites worked in the temple in Jerusalem. They were the only people who were allowed to work in the central part of the temple in Jerusalem by birth. They were from the tribe of Levi. And the job of the priests was to offer up sacrifices, and the job of the Levites in the temple was to do all the other religious stuff, all the other rituals besides just sacrificing. That was their role. That was their job. And it's, 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 a, it's a fun thing uh, to think about as it's the new year and as a church we've embarked upon reading through the Bible chronologically. Is it chronologically we're going to come to Leviticus and Deuteronomy? And that's where some of you are going to be tempted to quit or to just like, oh yeah, I did my reading that day. I'm just like, oh, 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 now I'm, I'm, I can skip to March. Um, I want you to pay attention to Leviticus and Deuteronomy or at least make an attempt to actually read the words that are on the page with the understanding that it doesn't matter. That's why you don't pay attention to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's why you think it's boring because you're like, dude, who cares about grasshoppers and whether or not I can eat them, let, let alone the fact that that's gross. And, and that's, because, that's because everything has changed, right, for us. With the coming of work, the completion of Christ's work, all those details don't really matter. But they mattered if you were alive during Jesus' time, if you're alive during John's time, because all that had to do with worshiping in the temple. And if you wanted to worship God, technically the only way you can worship God, the real, real worship of God, is in the temple. I mean, if Jews gathered in synagogues, but the synagogue was the substitute worship if you can't get to the temple. If you can't get to the temple, then on the Sabbath day, you gather with the other Jews who are around you and you do some stuff. And, and when I say do some stuff, I'm being as precise as the Bible is on that question. Uh, because there's really one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 23, rather, chap, Deuteronomy chapter 23, that deals with the question of what synagogues are, what you're supposed to do in synagogue worship. Because a real worship happens in the temple. And those guys, and that's all to say that those guys, the priests and the Levites, knew as much about temple worship as your auto mechanic knows about your car. One hopes, at least, that your auto mechanic knows about your car, right? The one that you actually finally go to after getting some recommendations. They knew all this stuff, and like, when do I need, okay, okay, okay when, when, when do you offer up a turtle dove versus, uh, versus, um, versus a goat? Like, what's the deal there, and how clean does it have to be, and all this other stuff? They knew that stuff. These guys are experts in ritual in religious ritual. That's why they've come to talk to John. Because John the evangelist holds out on us until verse 28, this John was baptizing. And so that's their question. Who are you? Why is it that you are baptizing people? Because that's clearly a religious ritual. But we don't have any data on that. It's not in our manual, Leviticus. It's not there. So what's up with that? Who are you? Who, what, what gives you the authority to introduce this new religious ritual? And I think it's really important to understand them from that point of view. We have a tendency as Christians who have read our Bibles to think that the Bible people are about as two-dimensional as the paper that the Bibles are printed on, right? 
So the priests and Levites, they're just, they're bad guys. They're two-dimensional bad guys. The Pharisees are only two-dimensional bad guys. And some of them are bad guys, but not all of them are bad guys. In fact, when we get to the book of Acts, uh, when the dust settles, a lot of them were told that they convert. It, they're, they're, they're baptized and become Christians. So being, being a priest or Levite doesn't necessarily make you a bad guy. So it's important to understand where these guys are coming from as they ask this question. It's not even, it's, I, I, think, I think we make a mistake if we assume they're being hostile when they ask John, who are you? It's a real, honest, and totally legit question. You're introducing this new ritual, so what's up with that? Who are you? So they say, who are you? And John confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Notice, notice how John the Evangelist really underscores that language of testimony. Confessed and not deny, but confessed. Like he is really bearing witness, and he says, I am not the Christ. And you can see... You can imagine, at least, rather, the, the response of the priests and Levites, which is, okay, that's who you're not. Um, apparently, we're playing 20 questions. So, okay, um, good to know, right? We've, we've, you're not that, and, and that, that's, that's in, that might actually have been something that they were thinking about, not the Christ, because... It would make sense when the Christ, the Messiah, comes, who's been prophesied throughout the Old Testament, that when he arrives, maybe he will introduce something like baptism, something new, something to mark this change, the end of one age, the beginning of a new age. And so they say, okay, are you, are you Elijah? What then? Are you Elijah? Verse 21. Why would they ask that? Are you Elijah? And, and, the, and the answer is, comes with Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And Malachi 4, which may very well be the very last prophecy, the very last written prophecy of the Bible chronologically, as we're going to be reading the Bible chronologically. There's a good argument to be made that Malachi was the very last one, so not just put there in terms of the order that we have the books in the Bible. And so that would mean the last words in the Old Testament are this prophecy about Elijah in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, where the Lord says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I want to focus in, of course, on that phrase, I will send you Elijah. It would appear that some people thought, well, we know, we know that Elijah, and this is about, you go back and read Kings and Chronicles, Elijah did not die. Elijah was the first of the prophets, not literally the first chronologically in all the prophets, but, the, but he's considered the first prophet of the great prophetic era, which is also runs alongside the period of the monarchy, and he is the, the, uh, the prophets whom God sent to direct the kings and to keep them on the path of righteousness, which was kind of a struggle. Uh, but Elijah is this important figure historically in the, in the history of God's plan for Israel. And so Elijah didn't die, but he was taken up directly into heaven. And so it would appear that there was some thinking, and, and, still go, and it's still present, there's some stream of that in modern-day Judaism, is that Elijah, who physically went up to heaven, did not die, well, he's going to physically come back down again. He is going to show up. And when he shows up, that will be, that will be he's heralding the day of the Lord. He'll be continuing his prophetic ministry. Almost it took a brief break, then comes back. And so it's in that sense that John then says, I am not. I am not, that, I am not Elijah in that sense. In Matthew chapter 11, 
Uh, Jesus says that John is Elijah, but what he means by that is, yes, John the Baptist, in fact, does fulfill the prophecy of Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, but not in this literal sense that he is Elijah, Elijah. He is in the spirit of Elijah. As we know from Luke in particular, we know uh, who John's family is. We know the names of his parents. We know all that. He himself is a Levite. So it's not, he's not Elijah in that sense, that sense of, having, of being literally the, the, the prophet himself come back from the dead, or the not dead, having come down from heaven. So then they say, okay. Oh, they don't actually say okay, but they say, are you the prophet? Now, the prophet, who's the prophet? The prophet, it's not a prophet, because John was a prophet. The prophet, the prophet, is mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. And there's a lot more that could be unpacked here, but I just want to read Deuteronomy 18, 18, where the Lord says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so here's... What people are looking for then is they're, they're reading their Bibles and they are looking forward to the next work that the Lord is going to do. There will be a prophet like Moses. Uh, Moses. Moses is different from all the other prophets because Moses spoke to the Lord face to face. And as you read your Bible, as you read Exodus and Leviticus, that uh, Moses' face was actually transformed. Uh, it was the same physical features, but, but being in the direct presence of the Lord, he absorbed the Lord's glory. His face radiated the Lord's glory, and people couldn't even look at Moses' face, and so Moses had to wear a veil. No other prophet could say that. That, that didn't happen with anybody else. And so Moses, so, so, what, so this prophecy then, is that there will be a prophet like Moses with the same direct access to the Lord. Somebody who's right there in the presence of the Lord is going to come. And when he comes, that's going to be a great day. That's going to be something the Lord prophesies. And again, that's a sign of a new work. Just as the Lord giving the law through Moses was something new, it marked a new stage in Israel's relationship with their God, with, with, with the Lord God of Israel, so too will this new prophet, the prophet who comes, not just a prophet, there are plenty of a prophets, but now the prophet, the capital T prophet is going to come. And so they say, okay, is that you? And John says, no. So, There's one thing, before we move on, they want to point out here, with their line of questioning, there's an expectation that the Lord is going to do something. There's something in the air at the time that they don't come to John and say, as they might have, time out, buddy. We're the officials. We are the priests and Levites. We know about worship, and you, are, you don't have any license to be baptized, and we're going to shut this operation down and get you locked up right away for, and charge you a bunch of fines. They don't do that. They're like, this could totally be legit. And the reason they say this could totally be legit is that there was a real expectation at that time. It becomes very clear from this passage, even if it were nowhere else in the Bible. From this passage, it's very clear that there's an expectation 
that God is about to do something. That any minute then, the Christ could appear, the prophet could appear, Elijah could come down from heaven. Something is going to happen. And the priests and Levites of all people, the Pharisees, as we'll see in a second, that the people who know their Bibles, the people who know very carefully and are thinking super hard about what the Lord is doing, that they are ready for God to do something. What this John was then, so what was John? Because you can feel, I have, here, here's where I have a lot of sympathy for the priests and Levites and anybody else who has to have a conversation with a prophet. Um, seriously, you know, you read the Bible and like you have these, these the pro, pe people have interactions with prophets and like we know that, yeah, the guy who's having the argument with the prophet, he's a bad guy because prophets are always good guys, but Honestly, like these, they, they do not work super hard at being clear in their conversation. And, and it just, you know, so they go, who are you? Like super helpful to tell us who you're not, but like this is getting irritating. Like we don't want to get to like, are you bigger than a bread box? Um, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And the answer is, that John was a witness to the light of the Lord. John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as a prophet Isaiah said. He paraphrases uh, Isaiah 40, verse 3, which we heard earlier in the service. It says, that is me. I am the one who has been sent to prepare people for the coming of the Lord, that the Lord is at hand, that the Lord is coming, and it is my job to get people ready for that. With the Lord comes glory, of course, that glory that Moses radiated. In other words, light. And so John came to tell people that the Lord is coming and to prepare people for the coming of the Lord, for the coming of his glory, for the coming of the light of the Lord. And so by preparing people for the Lord, John bore witness to the light of the Lord. In other words, as he clarifies in our remaining verses in chapter 1, verses 24 through 28, John bore witness to the gospel's beginning. And so the question the question tightens here. The question narrows in. Why did John baptize? And as I said, mentioned earlier, it's in verse 28, almost a parenthetical statement that John the Evangelist underscores for us that John was baptizing. Tells us, tips his hand, John was baptizing. He's baptizing in Bethany across the Jordan. This is not the same Bethany. For the, in other words, he's saying, for those who are curious, this is not the same Bethany that Jesus, where Jesus liked to go visit Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his friends there. It's a different Bethany. So that's a helpful geographical point. There's not really deep religious significance to it other than that. But it does tell us that John was baptizing. And, and the other thing that John says, John the Evangelist points out in verse 24, again, it looks like a parenthetical comment, but he says they were from the Pharisees. And again, this is where we think, well, Pharisees, the bad guys. But we forget who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees, it was not as though there was a group of people in Judea who just decided we're going to be bad. Uh, that's not how people operate. The Pharisees actually begin as a religious movement, a reform movement that studied the word of God. And modern day rabbinic Judaism, 
Judaism as we know it today is actually technically called rabbinic Judaism. It's focused around rabbis, teachers, and that's a descent directly from the Pharisees. The Pharisees recover the study of the Word of God and democratize the study of the Word of God. You don't have to be a Levite, you don't have to be from a priestly family in order to study the Word, become a scribe, and become a teacher of the Word. These are people who, in a very real sense, turn in, in their work and in their tradition, take the study of the Bible and they give it to as many people as possible. And they took Bible study super seriously. These are the guys that you wanted then to be your elders and your pastors because they knew what was in the Bible. Now, there's a whole other story of why it is that some of the primary opponents of Jesus come out of the Pharisees. But that's what you need to know about the Pharisees. And it's important to know that because it tells us it's not just that these priests and Levites were... Um, that they were priests and Levites, that they knew about sacrifices and, and how to worship, they were Pharisees as well. So they knew the whole Bible, not just, I mean, I'm not trying to pick on my auto mechanic, but like, yes, he knows that stuff really well, but I'm not going to ask him you know, questions of political philosophy. You know, who should I vote for? He'll probably tell me, but I don't want to know. These guys, these guys know their theology. They could, they could write the Westminster Confession of Faith, or at least the early version of it. Uh, they knew all this stuff. And so that's set up for the question, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? It's not that they expected the Christ, Elijah, the prophet to baptize. It's rather to say, these are eschatological figures. In other words, these are figures, these guys are going to come at the end of time the end of the age. And, and maybe not necessarily eschatology in the way that we think of it, like the end of the world, everything being burned up with fire, but certainly the age that is, this age, this period where we've gone into, we've gone into kingship and the prophets, and then we've gone into captivity and taken off into exile, and now we're a remnant people, a small number of people and tribes are scattered around the world, and we're under, uh, we, we've been under colonial government for hundreds of years. That period is coming to an end, and something new is coming. They have a very strong expectation, and, and they're saying, John, if you're not a long-expected eschatological figure, if you're not the person who is bringing the end of one age and the beginning of a new one, why would you baptize? Why would you introduce this new religious ritual? And of course, it is interesting. Their first, the first person they would go to would be like, well, this must be the Christ. And for those of us who've read the rest of the Bible, spoiler alert, the Christ does introduce a baptism. It's central to his ministry. So they've got something. They, they, they certainly have their eye on, on the right place. They're asking the right question. So if you're not one of these guys, then why are you doing this? And the answer, of course, is that John baptized as a witness to the gospel's beginning. I baptize with water, verse 26, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John baptized with water, and that meant something is going on. They were right. Something is going on here, and you had better pay attention. But it's not John. John 
as important as he is, and as important as what he is doing is, is kind of not the real deal. That's not the important thing. The important thing is the one who comes after him. That's the whole thing. And you can miss John completely as long as you get the one who comes after John. They needed to start looking for someone far greater than John, somebody whose shoes uh, John is not qualified to remove for him, whose sandal John is not worthy to untie. In other words, John 1.29. I know I didn't read it, but in John 1.29, John says to his disciples, when he sees Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. And I can't help but think, at least wonder, is Jesus there? Like literally among you stands one? Because it's the next day that John says this to his disciples, to those who attach themselves to him as their teacher. You're missing it. Among you stands. Among you stands one you do not know. And so then he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Just as was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, in Isaiah 40 verse 9, the prophet says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold your God the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That in fact, everything is changing. In fact, the end of the age is at hand. The beginning of the new age is dawning. It is right now that he will take away the sins of the world, that he will die on the cross for the sins of his people, and that he will be raised on the third day so that you who believe in him may have with him everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. When we think of the end of the ages, now we think of that which has been made possible through the coming of the Christ. Now that Christ has come, now that he has completed his work, it is indeed true that there is nothing left to do. We are no longer looking for Elijah or for a prophet or for anything else, but the end is at hand. It is near, the end of all things is near, and the inauguration, the beginning of his making all things new in the new heavens and the new earth, the renewing and the restoration and the rebuilding and the regeneration of this fallen world is nigh because he has come. Behold your God. John came to tell them to behold their God, because John bore witness to the gospel's beginning then. He bore witness, he gave testimony by calling attention to Jesus. Which helps you to understand then how you are to bear witness to Jesus today. You bear witness to Jesus by calling attention to him, by living the life that he made possible. Because of the coming of Christ, because he took away your sin, because he died for your sin, you are dead to sin. 
Because he was raised from the dead, you have been raised to newness of life. That the old way of living, the old way of being, the ways of this world, greed and vanity and pride, the selfishness, the self-absorption, all the characteristics of this world in which we live, The things which have not changed and never change no matter how many new years come. The elections that are upon us and who will be running and what we'll be told to do and how we'll be asked to live accordingly. It's a way of the flesh. It is a way of the world which is dead. It is a way that we have been saved and resurrected from. Instead, you have been called to lead the new life in Jesus Christ. Not for yourself, not for that which is temporary and passing away, not for the old world, but for the new world. Living not as the people of this age do, but living on earth as it is in heaven. That is what you have been called to do. That is how you bear witness to him. You bear witness to the gospel by living the new life, the eschatological life in Jesus Christ. John bore witness to the gospel's beginning. You, beloved, are called to bear witness to the gospel with your whole spirit, soul, and body. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoice always. How do you bear witness? How do you witness to Christ? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Our Lord, we behold you. You came as was prophesied of old. You came as was prophesied throughout the scriptures, and John bore witness to you. Now we ask that by your grace and by the work of your Spirit in us, that we might bear witness to you as well. We pray that you would indeed sanctify us completely, that we might live according to your peace, and that we might bear witness to this world that it is no longer necessary to live according to the principles of that which is temporary and passing away, but rather to live according to what you have done and will do for us through Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen. Stand together, sing our song of response and preparation before the throne of God above. Please stand.